Good morning, church. I feel like we've already had an edifying time together. Thank you to Howie and Kelly's class. That was really rich to be reminded about such a glorious doctrine as the providence of God. Out of the mouths of babes, or they used to be babes, they're growing. And uh, so thanks for instructing us. That was so, so rich. Let's, let's turn to prayer once again together. Father, we do thank you that nothing comes to us apart from your fatherly hand. Thank you that we can trust that in every circumstance of our lives. And we thank you for how you order all things, including us being here this morning, to be able to call upon your name together. Even thinking of guests this morning that you have providentially arranged to be here. Lord, we thank you that um, you have a way of ordering all things for your glory and for the good of souls. And so, Lord, would you act for your glory through the preaching of your word. I pray that by, the, by your grace and by the movement of your spirit, you would allow there to be a certain attentiveness to your word this morning. That would allow us to really absorb what you're wanting to say, to understand something of the magnitude of the shift that is happening in our text. And help us to even get a little taste of the fact that if it wasn't for this breakthrough that we're going to read about, we wouldn't be here worshiping you today. So Lord, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for how you order all things. We thank you how you've done it to bring such good to our souls. Help us to feast in this time because there's a famine out there and many that need to hear this news. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, this morning, roughly one-third of the way through the book of Acts. This big book dealing with what the apostles continued to do and to teach as an extension of what Jesus did and taught. That's what we're reading about in the book of Acts. And we have had the privilege of witnessing the birth of this infant church in Jerusalem and watching the church grow and begin to mature and to go through early challenges, even experience persecution and have to leave home with the best news in the world in order to spread it more fully and more or further yet. And now they're going to, we get to witness them experience one of the biggest tests they've had so far in these next couple of passages. One of the biggest lessons that they are going to learn is going to be in the text before us this morning. And the lesson they're going to learn really is the main point of this passage. And I'm going to give it to you up front because we have 43 verses that we're looking at this morning. That's why I spared Brandon from having to read all of them. Um, so the lesson that they're going to learn is that the good news is not just for Jews, but for all people. That the good news is not just for Jews, but for all people. It is to the Jew first, yes, but also to the Gentile. Now, it is a little difficult for us, I'm assuming here the majority of us are non-Jews and are therefore Gentiles. Um, it's harder for us to understand the shift that happened in this text, just because it's not what we just grew up in. But I'm going to try to help us, with God's help, to feel something of what Peter would have had to feel in this text. And if they took it to heart, and I thank God that they did, because we're here worshiping today, because they did take it to heart. If they take to heart this main point that the gospel is not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles, it would help them get over the hump. And what's this hump? 
Well, I kind of call it the Acts 1-8 hump. You got, right, remember that key verse in the book of Acts, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria. Okay, so far so good. That's where we're at. But when you go to the ends of the earth, you're going to be interacting with different sorts of folk, right? The Gentile folk, the non-Jew. So to get over that hump, to move from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that's quite the hump to get over for the church. And God, you're going to see is providentially ordering things to help his church get over that hump. And we can be very glad this morning that they did by the grace of God. They took this word to heart. And if we take this word to heart, our hearts are going to be enlarged with God's desires for all peoples to hear the good news. We're going to give our prayers to that end that all peoples would receive the good news. We're going to give our finances to those ends to try to leverage our resources to make sure people get to hear the good news. We, if this is taken to heart, if this lesson gets deep down into our bloodstream, we're going to be the kind of church that is willing to give our own sons and daughters to go to the hardest places in the world to see this news in one sense, it's the hump that we have to get over right now is to get to the gospel and some of the hardest to reach places. And we're going to get over that hump by this kind of message getting into our hearts. So we need God to do this. And the way he does it in this text and the way he brings it about is through, you could say, three visions. Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision, and what I'm going to call God's vision. Okay, So you have... You have Cornelius' vision and Peter's vision, and both of those kind of pave the way and set the stage for what um, our brother Brandon read at the end of the passage, really God's vision for the nations and what he wants for the nations. So let's see how the, he kind of weaves these things together, looking first at Cornelius' vision in verses 1 through 8. First, I want to introduce you to Cornelius. So look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, to introduce you to Cornelius, to help, to get you, help you to get him to know him a little bit better, think about him kind of two sides. One, his professional side, and two, his religious side. That will help us get to know him a little bit better. So Cornelius, think about his professional side. We're told that he's a centurion. So when you hear that word centurion, think century, 100 years. Century, he's a uh, centurion is over 100 soldiers in the army. That is his role, and he's part of the Italian cohort. I don't know if that's just his hundred or if it's part of a larger group, like 600, so like six of those uh, groupings. Um, but that would have been part of a larger group of soldiers, like a legion, 6,000 soldiers. But he stands as head and leader over 100 men that he is in charge of. So obviously, he was a man who is recognized for his leadership ability, um, he would have been a man of some wealth and considerable social standing. A guy who would have been prominent as a centurion. He's stationed there in Caesarea, and uh, that seems to be the headquarters. That's what we know about him kind of on the professional side. Okay, It's kind of a big deal. What about the religious side? 
Again, verse 2, he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually. So he feared God. This is interesting because he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And so he's a God-fearer. He's one who actually channeled his focus to the God of Israel. Out of all the so-called gods, he was focusing on the God of Israel. He was revering the God of Israel. He was most inclined to worship the God of Israel. He was devout, right? He didn't just, he, he led his whole family in that direction. And he was devout, not just in words, you know, like in the U.S., we might get like a survey we have to take and you just, you know, check the box. What are you, I'm Protestant, I'm Jewish, I'm, you know, just check the box. And that's a way of showing, you know, devotion, it seems, in America. But no, he actually put actions to it. He was a man, not just a word saying, yeah, how about the God of Israel? This is a man that actually lived it. He gave alms. We talked about alms last week. Remember, Dorcas is one who gave alms. We talked about how those were held in high regard to give, especially to the needy, in proportion to what he had. And so he was giving alms faithfully. He was praying often. He doesn't seem like he's a proselyte. That's someone who is a non-Jew that converts to Judaism. It doesn't seem like he went all the way there, but it seems very clear that he is at very least deeply sympathetic to the Jewish faith. That's where his heart leans the most. So put it this way. This is really what you need to know about Cornelius. He's a respectable man and he's unconverted. Like we should learn about him and go, hey, that's a guy that's you know worthy of some respect there, but he's unconverted. This is important. He might be a God-fearer, but he doesn't know God in the truest sense, the, the sense that matters the most. And I know this for certain because God is ordering every, this entire set text and the next one makes no sense if he is converted. In a sense, this whole thing is designed to bring about his conversion. For him to hear a message that's going to bring about his salvation. So he's a God-fearer who is unconverted. So his need is actually still great. He is near the kingdom, but he's not in the kingdom. This is what we need to know about Cornelius. And there's many people like this. There's many people like this that are respectable in a general sense. They have a general respect toward God, even a general respect toward Christ. But they don't know him. They don't know him personally. They're respectable, but they're actually unconverted. Lots of people may even respect them, but their heart has been unchanged by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a real thing for them, and so Cornelius, in a sense, is a picture of you know what God wants to see happen. People not just that are so far off where they don't have a thought toward God, but even people that think they know God coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get into Cornelius' vision. Now that we got to know him on the professional and religious side, let's look at his vision that he's given. Starting in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, that is 3 p.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, 
And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one, Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. One of the things I find a little humorous here is you have this centurion who is the leader, you know, a leader in the army. Like this is a man's man and he gets this vision and it says he stared at this angel with terror and said, what is it, Lord? So you just have the centurion just kind of quaking in his army boots, you know, because he is, uh, God is getting a little closer than he's used to. And, uh, but God is communicating to him through this vision. Um, God's acknowledging his devotion. Kind of has that imagery of Old Testament sacrifices and incense going up to God. It's saying it's being honored. It's recognized for what it is, but the need remains, right? Your devotion is recognized, but it's certainly not enough, right? So the need remains. Send for Peter. Send for Peter. And so he's told to send for Peter. Peter's in Joppa. Remember, that's where we left off last week where he healed Tabitha or Dorcas, right? Raised her from the dead. So that's where Peter's at. Peter's at, And he's at the house of Simon the Tanner. And so he's saying, go there and bring him, bring him to Caesarea. And so Cornelius is going to act on the vision, verses 7 and 8. When the angels who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he tells them everything they need to know, and then he sends out these three Gentiles, right, like him, sends out these three Gentiles, two servants from the household, one of those trusted soldiers, sends them to go give this message to Peter in hopes of bringing Peter back to Caesarea where he is at. Why Peter? What's happening here? Well, Peter's going to have a message that Cornelius is going to desperately need to hear. He and all his household are going to need to hear this message. And in fact, it's not just them. Ultimately, all the Gentiles are going to need to hear this message. What is God doing here? God is preparing this Gentile to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And simultaneously, we're going to see he's preparing the messenger that's going to bring the news to him. And there is a parallel to what we hear about happening in the mission world um, where people will receive dreams and they will imagine folk bringing a book in their hand and having a message to bring them. And so, This doesn't happen all the time, but it has been known to happen where it's recounted and documented many, many times where people like they'll, they'll be coming into an unreached people and they'll realize that there are categories for their own need for whatever message they're going to bring. And so what they end up finding is these people are prepared and even eager on the edge of their seat to hear the message that is to be declared to them. God is doing this. He can do this in the world. This should make us not go, hey, well, God gives vision, so we don't need to go to the nations. No, that would be the worst conclusion you could possibly come to. Because 
um, those visions, by and large, are preparatory. They're preparing people to hear the message because God has a primary way of saving people, and that is through the message being declared to people through other people who once had it declared to them, right? So this is how God is working, and he's working through this vision. So he's preparing Cornelius for this message. Sends him to go get Peter, um, and now we turn to Peter's vision. Verse, verses 9 through 16. The next day, the next day, as they were on their journey, that is those three Gentiles, in approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour, so about noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while he was, and while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance kind of a dream-like state. This is a vision. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. All right, so Peter goes up on the rooftop, right? There would have been these external steps going up to the rooftops in those days. A really ideal place, if you ask me, for a place for private prayer, probably overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Even better. We could go for a little bit of that right now. So this is, everybody's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he's, he's up there, he's praying. He goes into this dreamlike straight, and there's something that he's gonna see and there's something that he's gonna hear. Okay, and that's what we have to pay attention. What does he see? Well, at first glance, it's very interesting what he sees. He's seeing basically like this big picnic blanket coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it, and he's being invited to a barbecue. Like all different kind of meats. Take your point, rise, kill, eat, whatever you like. And uh, now, I've, I know enough of the guys at FBC and I've been to enough of the meat retreats that we have at Dave's Cabin to realize that if we go to one of these meat retreats and all kinds of meat is cooked and it's thrown into a pot, there's even like some spam in there and stuff. I don't know how that gets in there, Dave. Um, there's all kinds of meats in there. I haven't met any of the guys, you know, that are like sluggish at all. They're all just like, let's go. You know, like they're glad to be at the barbecue and they're glad to eat whatever's in the pot. You know, any of these kinds of meat, we're just excited to be there. And so if we're at the barbecue and Peter's reacting this, he's like, oh no, I could never. We're like, what's wrong with Pete? You know, like we just don't have a category for why Peter is reacting this way. Just like one of the guys at FBC wouldn't have a category for why that guy's not sticking his hand in there and just grabbing the first piece of meat. He can get more after that. Whatever you would like. What is wrong with Peter? Well, 
Leviticus chapter 11, you could go back and read that entire chapter. That will help us understand something of what is wrong with Peter because in Leviticus 11, it talks about under the old covenant law, a distinction between clean and unclean animals. There were some animals that were deemed clean, some animals that were deemed unclean, and there was a clear, (laughs) I mean clear distinction made between these two animals, these types of animals, right? So Leviticus 20 verse 25, just for an example of it, he says this, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean bird. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold as unclean. In other words, you should not, if there's an animal in that unclean category, you are not to partake of it and therefore make yourself unclean. There needs to be a distinction between what is clean and what is unclean. That is where Peter is coming from. So we have to try to understand It's hard for us, but imagine growing up as an Orthodox Jew, okay, with that clear distinction made, like every day of your life in the diet that you, that was put before you and explained to you in every kind of social setting, you were paying attention to it and your parents are helping you navigate it. That is just the world that you lived in. Imagine growing up as an Orthodox Jew and then being offered this unholy mixture of animals, right? Clean, unclean, and just go for it. Go ahead. Help yourself. In other words, make no distinction. Grab whatever you want out of the pot, right? That's what Peter, in a sense, is being confronted here. Like, make no distinction. Whatever meat you want. And Peter's going, I have always made distinctions, right? So his reaction is, in essence, I have never done that, and I'm not about to start right now. That's his initial knee-jerk reaction. It's a little bit like Daniel. Remember the prophet Daniel when he was uh, sent away into Babylon, and he's the best and the brightest of the Israelite youth, and so he is uh, summoned to the king's court there, and they're going to fatten him up and feed him. And, and, uh, but the problem is, is that he's an Orthodox Jew. He is devout, and he's going, you know, I cannot eat at that king's table. Like, I can't eat everything he eats. I have to make distinctions. And so he's pleading for a different diet, right? Because he doesn't want to become defiled by eating what these Gentiles eat. That's exactly what's happening here. But this is a massive, you know, recalibration, you know, for Peter's mind right now. It's a little bit like this. When I was young, And I was a very impressionable young child, okay? Now, you're going to have to ask my brother Blaze his version of this story. But I can only tell you how it impacted me, okay? So when I was young, my step, I I would see this dish that would just show up, kind of seeing when my mom would get the groceries. This dish, you know, one of those contained, like, containers, not rubber made, but that's just how it came from the store. And it would come like that, and i kind of look in it and stuff, and trying to figure out what that was. And I would be inquisitive sometimes, and uh, my stepdad always told me, oh, that's baby goat intestines. <laughs> this went on for years, okay? This went on for years, and I'm going, oh, that's baby goat intestines. I ain't touching that. 
I never touched that. I have never started, and I'm never going to do it, right? Until I became of age, and all of a sudden, I was told, this is shredded pork. <laughs> and I realized, like, what I had been missing all of those years. I actually feel like a really good world got opened up to Peter right here. But it's just a little adjustment. But that took a major adjustment, you know, for me to go with, no, it's baby goat intestines. It's not good. Unclean, unclean. No, very clean, right? It's a major shift in the thinking. And this, it's, it's what it took for me to kind of get over it. You know, it's a little, for Peter, it was a little hard to digest, pun intended. A little hard to digest at first, Hence why it had to be repeated three times. Did you notice that? It had to be repeated three times for him to really get this message. But even after it's repeated three times, Peter is genuinely perplexed. Look at the first part of verse 17. Now Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. So he is trying to compute what he saw, what he heard, what that means for him. It's so different than what he had known about the distinctions that need to be made. And so um, one question you might have, I know I had this as I was considering this text and, and had it in the past as well, is why did he struggle so much to think that these, cle- these foods were now clean when the New Testament teaches it so clearly? The New Testament teaches plainly that God has made all foods clean. We're no longer under the old covenant. We're in the new covenant now. Why was it so hard for him and fellow Jews like him to kind of get this? Like, for example, Jesus taught it. Paul taught it. Jesus said, Mark 7, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Or same chapter, chapter 7, verse 19, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and is expelled, and then it says this quote, thus he declared all foods clean. So it's very explicit, but these things were written down, you know, after this time, right? So Peter didn't have the luxury of just seeing a very clean statement like that. So there would have been pointers that could have got him going in that direction. But if he lived his entire life, you know, with these kind of dietary constraints, it would have been Difficult for him just to switch out of that, just turn turn the switch. And Paul taught similarly, says in Romans 14, 14, I know and I'm persuaded, and this is from a devout Jew, right? No, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Very clear. Or uh, 1 Timothy 4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You just reach into that pot and you just pull it out, give hearty thanks to God for his good gifts, and then you feast and then go back for more and try to avoid the spam if you can. Not because it's unclean, it's just (laughs) different. Um, So the Jewish believers were understandably slow to come to grips that no distinctions needed to be made in this area, and they were slower to understand the implications of Jesus' teaching naturally because of the background that they had. So just trying to help us understand the shift for Peter. It was so new to him, but it did get clearer 
as they begin to, as they wrestle with these things, as the gospel was applied more fully, these things got clearer and clearer. And we actually see in the New Testament, the church wrestling with the implications of something like this. You see chunks like, for example, in, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians where they're talking about clean and unclean and you have a church made up of Jewish believers and, um, and Gentiles. And so you're, you're kind of, and they're kind of working this thing out. Like these guys want to hold on to some dietary things. Sometimes it's Gentiles coming from their backgrounds. They used to offer sacrifices to idols and now those things are in the marketplaces. Should we eat those? Should we not eat those? There's a lot of those kinds of things happening and they're getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And one of the basic points that stand under, under it is, well, all things are declared clean. They're permissible to eat. Then the question just becomes, how can you love your neighbor at the same time if they don't have the exact same convictions on it and they're still working that out? And so that's a big part of it. But that's a little beyond the scope to go into great detail on it, but I thought I'd just mention it in passing. But now we see these two visions come together. Cornelius's vision and Peter's vision are going to start to be interwoven here and we can see God's providence and why he's doing what he's doing in verses 17 to 33. So let me read this chunk for us. Watch these two things come together and then we'll kind of marvel at God's providence together. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision uh to the what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, verse 18, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, kind of sounds like rise and eat. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. That would be a first big step for him. The next day, he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So you have this band of like 10 people now traveling together, their three servants, Peter, and then six others with him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Ugh. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, here they're weaving together. About this hour, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house 
at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, an angel, and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, the, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So much to say here. So we get to marvel together at the providence of God in preparing this meeting in this living room at Cornelius' house. Marvel with me at how God providentially just prepared Peter for this, right? So he gave him a vision, in a, in a sense, to help soften him up for this visit, right? Because would he have just naturally gone on his own, given his background? No, because it wasn't just a distinction he made between unclean and clean animals. He also made a distinction between unclean and unclean people, right? And so he would have been very hesitant to go on his own. And so God, by his spirit, deals with this deep hesitation that Peter has. He shocks him with the vision that he gives him of this blanket coming down and all these, this mixture of clean and unclean animals and saying, take, eat, whatever you want. No distinction. Okay, that shocked him awake, right? And he repeats it three times. Don't call unclean what I made clean. And then he's chewing on it, digest, trying to digest it. It's hard. He's pondering it, struggling with it. And then providentially, it just so happens, right? At this moment, at this very moment, these three Gentile messengers come, right? I do think, I wonder if there's a parallel with the, the three times he repeats it and then the three messengers that come and if he's kind of putting some of that together. I don't know for sure, but what I do know is that the Spirit is helping him make a very important connection here. The Spirit is pressing in on him some important things. So verse 20, rise. So um, I'll start in verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I know you're going to be hesitant. So I'm telling you, don't be hesitant. Trust me, go. I have something for you here. So he gave the vision. Then the Spirit coming, guiding him, saying, go without, without hesitation, without objection. And then we put the pieces together by looking at verse 28. And he said to them, Peter said to um, Cornelius and all the guests, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, right? He's shown me by his Spirit. He has providentially helped me come to grips with something, I'll be honest, I'm still digesting a little bit, but I'm kind of coming to grips with it right now. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The Spirit took that distinction between animals that Peter had always made and helped Peter apply it to the distinction between people that Peter had always made. Just as he must stop making a distinction between clean and unclean animals, so he must stop making a distinction between clean and unclean people. Just as he can now eat what he once could not eat, so now he must visit those he once would not visit. 
And while he's perplexed at first, he's coming to grips with these things and he comes to that conclusion. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And I love leading up to that point, how at that first interaction with Cornelius, Cornelius falls down to worship him. And Peter's like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, right? Just like angels, when people are tempted to worship them, he lifts them up and says, oh no, I'm a fellow servant. I'm a man just like you. And one commentator put this really well. He said this, quote, Peter refused both to be treated to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Can I say that again? It captured the dynamic really well. He said this, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Peter is coming to grips with these realities. And in full flower, as this develops, this, this truth about not making distinctions between clean and unclean people, um, the conviction in full flower is going to be that it's going to come to the point where he's not going to have a hesitation about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the point in this text. He must not hesitate to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And I do think in the vision I wonder, even if that, that vision of that blanket or that sheet coming down upon the earth, and it talks about its four corners, there's language in the scriptures that talks about the four corners of the earth. And in Revelation 20, it talks about that's where the Gentiles are, the four corners of the earth. And so in other words, it's like breaking down that distinction is going to be part of what puts them over the hump to get the gospel to the four corners of the earth that all the peoples might come to hear the good news, the saving news about Jesus the Christ. And so he works so providentially in Peter to kind of break down those hesitations and bring him to that point where he is ready to visit these Gentiles, be close enough to them to be able to proclaim the news that they must hear. But at the same time, God was providentially preparing these Gentiles to hear this message and making them ready, even attentive for it. This, this vision helped him prepare to hear the message. And I even love here, I don't want to miss this, this little gem, but do you notice that Cornelius takes the initiative to invite friends and family? Do you notice that? I think it's just a beautiful thing here. He has this impulse. God is doing something here. He has something he wants me to hear. And if God wants me to hear it, I want those whom I love the most to hear it. And so he starts inviting friends and family. There is such a deep impulse here that I think is so instructive for us. I think that's a beautiful thing that God does in a born-again heart is that he helps us to love the people around us, the people that we're around the most, to want them to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, to share it with them ourselves or to bring them to a place where they're going to be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It is such an impulse of a heart that's being sanctified to want to do that. And I want to commend it to you, brothers and sisters. I know some of you, I've actually seen beautiful examples of this from our church even this week of wanting people that they're close to to hear the good news about Jesus. This could look like inviting someone to church. This could look like starting a Bible study. This could look like trying to introduce this person to this person so that gospel conversations can happen. But understand the heart of it, his desire for those around him and his spheres of influence to hear the message. Be like Cornelius in this way. 
It's truly beautiful. I remember being struck by this point when uh, a, a church that many of us really appreciate, Capitol Baptist Church in in um, Washington, D.C., they actually have it as part of their membership covenant that that any member of their church is going to commit to seeking to win family members to Christ. They're just making it explicit. There's something we should be doing anyway, but to make it explicit where it's just like, yeah, the thought of anybody in my family not knowing Christ because they haven't adequately had it, had the good news explained to them should be devastating to us. We should be really discontent with that possibility. We would want to press in and make that known. And we'd want to spur each other on in that and pray, even as we seek to courageously have conversations that can be pretty uncomfortable at times. But I want to commend that to you and not just pass over that little gem there that we see from Cornelius' example. Now, um, so we're marveling at these two providential strands coming together, God preparing Peter to speak the message, God preparing Cornelius to hear the message. And um, I can't help but just remember and just hear an echo from something we looked at a few weeks ago. You remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Just as the Lord brought Philip providentially into the Ethiopian's chariot, so here the Lord has brought Peter into Cornelius' living room. This is a beautiful work of God. You sometimes have to pause and say, what does that say about God? God wants people to hear the good news. This good news will make the difference on where people spend their eternity. This shows something about the love, the mercy, the grace of God for him to hear. This is God's heart. I've heard it said before, God always has one eye on the nations. His heart is there, and so it is with the Christian. We should always have a care for those who don't know Christ, especially those who don't have access to even hearing his name. And um, so God brings Peter right into Cornelius' living room. You talk about a gift for a guy who could spend eternity apart from Christ. What a gift from God. And not only that, did you notice how attentive this audience is? I mean, no preacher today could ask for a more attentive audience than Peter had in Cornelius' living room. Did you see that? Look at that. He says, so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. I did all the trouble. I organized this whole thing, right? This unconverted man organized this whole thing right? Because of the message, it's going to be heard. So here we are in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Ready? Go. <laughs> and the preachers are going, praise the Lord. You know, that's the kind of attentiveness that you long for. But there it is right here for this pivotal moment in history where they're going to be able to get over the hump, to break into the, God, to, into the Gentile world. This is a moment of breakthrough in redemptive history and God is wanting to use Peter in a special way right now to make that initial crack into the Gentile world. That, and that's a door that's going to be flung open and the Apostle Paul is going to dive through it. You know, we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. But Peter's going to go through it and in one moment, in one sense, the suspense has just been built up to this point. These things are woven together. Everybody's listening. They're literally like at the edge of their seat, ready to hear this message that's been prepared for them. And so we're kind of going, well, what's he going to say? You know, if I design, if, if this week there was something, such a burden on my heart, and 
I don't usually do this. And I just started pulling out all the stops to try to say every single member of our church, we have to gather today because there's something I want to share with you. And I haven't done that. And I just pulled out all the stops. Like I'm ordering catering. I'm doing everything I can to get you in this building so that I can share. You're going, it's a little annoying. I got things to do, but obviously this must be really important. You know, for God to be pulling out all the stops, to be speaking to people in this way, to get them to this point, everybody should be going, what is he going to say that is so important? And that's where we get to God's vision, right? God has given Cornelius a vision. He's given Peter a vision. Now I'll put quotes around it. Now this is God's vision here in the text to close us. And this is a section that Brandon read for us a little bit ago. So verses 34 and 35, I want to start with. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What's the point here? This is Peter's way of saying, as he's just learning to digest these things and express these things under God, he's saying, I've come to see that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That God shows no partiality. God, we've seen, is not, not God, or he's saying God is not just willing to accept Jews. He's also willing to accept Gentiles. And we've seen throughout the Bible that God is shown himself willing both to judge Jew and Gentile alike. And now we're seeing in a fresh way that he's willing to save both Jew and Gentile alike. Now he's showing himself willing to save Jew and Gentile alike and makes me think of a couple other texts from the Apostle Paul, Romans 3, 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? That's a big question. That's, that's kind of striking at the heart of our text. Is God the God of the Jews only? It's a rhetorical question. He answers himself. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. That's his answer. Or Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. So the Jews need the same message that the Gentiles need. The Gentiles need the same message that the Jews need. Both need this. And he gives this good news, this message in a nutshell. When he says this, verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So the message is, he's Lord of everybody. Jew and Gentile alike are accountable before him. And the good news, the good news is that you can have peace with God and by implication with each other through Jesus Christ. It's a very simplified form But there it is in a nutshell. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. And this, again, is just really soaking in this context that's all about Jew and Gentile can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So I think of Ephesians 2.17 when it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and you who were near. Who are those who are far off? Gentiles. And to you who are near, who are those? Jews. I'm preaching peace, this gospel of good news of peace to Jew and Gentile 
alike. And one of the things we're going to see at the end of this passage is that Peter's saying, I'm an eyewitness of this news. I ate and drank with him. I watched him live. I watched him die. And I saw him after he was raised from the dead. I'm a witness to all of these things. And I'm to bear witness to these three main realities, just to think really clear about them. He's going to bear witness about three main things. And uh, each of them is very historical. This isn't some just snatching out of air, right? He's pointing to things that happened that every single human being has to come to grips with. These things happen in space and time and history. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised. These are the three things that he's going to highlight. And this is the essence of the gospel. And so he starts talking about the life of Christ in verse 37. He says, you yourselves know, and at that time, many of them were alive and heard Jesus was a household name. Many of them had gone out to be baptized by John the Baptist. They're hearing all about his healings. They probably, many of them heard him teach, right? This didn't happen in a corner. Like these people knew about it and he's making use of that here to help them have a shared knowledge of what's happening. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John proclaimed, the the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So in other words, we are witnesses to Jesus's life. He's just giving a brief summary of it, right? But you could fill that out a lot more. Like we watched him touch lepers and then be healed. We watched him raise people from the dead. We watched him heal a paralytic and forgive his sins. We watched him take a few loaves and a few fish, like some kid's lunchable, and feed a stadium. Like, we watched him do this stuff before our eyes. We ate and drank with him. We lived with him. His life validates that he's the one that we've been waiting for, that he is the Messiah. That's his point. This man was perfect. There was none like him. And so we bear witness to his life. In fact, that's why he had us walk with him, so that we could witness this so that you could hear our eyewitness account. And then we could extend it say, and this is why he inspired, spirit-inspired writers to write it down and preserve it so that you could hear an eyewitness account of these historical realities that these people who ate and drank with Jesus are bearing witness to. This is awesome if you stop and think about it. He's bearing witness gladly to the life of Christ because he experienced it in a profound way. He's also bearing witness to the death of Jesus. Notice how he keeps going. Right? This is the essence of the gospel. Jesus' life, his perfection, his sinlessness, and now his death. And we are his witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, he doesn't have to say the word cross there. He says the word tree very intentionally because it's an echo of Old Testament text that say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Right? pointing to the crucifixion and the fact that the point of Jesus' death is that he bears the curse as a substitute, the curse that we deserve to bear because of our sins. 
So he's saying that he became a curse for us. I can bear witness to the fact that Jesus died and it wasn't just like anybody else dying. It was a perfect man dying in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath of God on himself on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve. This is what he was declaring here. Jesus, I bore witness to the one who bore the curse for us, who deflected the wrath of God from us. And I also witnessed his resurrection. Look there as we come down the home stretch. But God, verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So he's saying, we are witnesses to Jesus's perfect life. We are witnesses to Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death for sinners. We are witnesses to his resurrection that proved everything that he did in his life and death is valid. It's proof of purchase. Everything he set out to do in his death for sinners is validated by his resurrection from the dead and it proves that he is indeed the Messiah and he accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. And so he says, Peter says, that they're commanded, notice that, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So in other words, we're bearing witness to historical facts. These things actually happened. And we're called, we're commanded to bear witness to these facts. And we're meant to press home on people's consciences that Jesus Christ, the one who has been resurrected from the dead, has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. Like the one who is raised is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. And Peter says elsewhere, not only that Jesus is to judge the living and the dead, and that a day is fixed on God's calendar on which he will judge the living and the dead, but I was struck by this, his language in, in the book of First Peter, he actually says that he's ready to come and judge the living and the dead. So this is the sense of it. Cornelius and his entire household are leaning and they're on the edge of their seats listening to this message. Meanwhile, Jesus is on the throne in heaven and he's leaning forward, ready to get up and come judge the living and the dead. Everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. And Peter's saying, I'm commanded to press this home on everybody's conscience. I'm commanded to help prepare people for that day to meet Jesus as their judge. And I'm also commanded to promise people beautiful things in Jesus' name. Forgiveness of sins for those who will believe in him. And repentance is implied here. Turn from their sins and believe in Jesus to give that promise. It's one of the most beautiful things to be able to do as a gospel preacher, to be able to tell people that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. Jesus promises forgiveness of sins for those who trust in him. Jesus is judge of all, and he's the savior of those who believe. That's a really important distinction. He's judge of all, but he's the savior of those who believe in him. What do you think Cornelius and his family did 
they believed in his name. They responded in faith. And we get to look at that next week as we look at this text. But for us right now, we just want to end by just soaking in this gospel reality to recognize that Jesus' death and his life is more than enough to deliver us from the wrath of God. It's more than enough to make up for every failure that we had and everything that we failed to do that we should have done. Jesus' life and death is more than sufficient to cover us, to make us acceptable before God. This word that God has providentially brought to Peter and now to Cornelius and his family is a message that is meant to go, obviously, to all peoples. We want to have that in our bloodstream as a church. We exist in part as Christians to get this message to all peoples. Starting with the people in our spheres of influence, but then wanting it to see carried out to all the nations. This is a beautiful thing that God is doing through Jesus Christ, breaking down this dividing wall of hostility through Jesus' death and resurrection to bring these two that were so distinct into one new man, one body of Christ. It's a miraculous thing that he is doing here. It's hard for us to feel fully, but I remember one time an experience that really helped me get this, and I close with this. This sense of the fact that God wants all peoples and he wants this dividing wall of hostility brought down. He doesn't want us to be show partiality in sharing the gospel. He wants it to go to all peoples. I remember um, when I was studying at Jerusalem University College for a time, going to a conference. And uh, I wasn't really prepared for what I was going to experience like in that moment. But there was this moment during the conference and we're right in the heart of Israel. And uh, there, there are... Palestinian believers, Gentile believers, and Jewish believers in this room. And we read the news, right? Like, oh, those two people can't be in the same room. There's a deeply embedded hostility, right, between the two. And I'm there observing this, you know, from a totally different country, just watching what's transpiring. And what happened was these believers who have all been, whether they were far off or near, they all needed this message of peace preached to them, right? All of them are those who have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them have found refuge in Christ and now they have this, this great commonality, right? That has dissolved their distinctions. And so what they do is they take this time where they start singing benedictions over each other. And I'm just watching these Jewish believers singing benedictions over these Palestinians. And I'm watching these Palestinians turn and sing benedictions over them. And this went on back and forth. And my heart was just really moved. And these texts are coming alive in my mind and realizing that what happened in this text was what helped get over the hump so that that could even become a possibility. And I want you to know, church, that even as believers now, like when we hear the gospel, that's God's benediction over us. This message that we get to hear every single day is God speaking a benediction over us of the peace that we have with him through faith in Jesus Christ. It was costly, but God has made the terms of peace. He's met the terms of peace so that we can rejoice and find great refuge in these realities every day. He speaks it over us so that it would become a song in our hearts but a song that we cannot help but sing to other people. 
in a song that we can't stand the thought of it not going to the furthest corners of the earth. And that's what we want to ache for. That's what we want to long for. And that's where we want to get it so in our bloodstream that as I began, I will also end. That we would even be willing to send our own sons and daughters to see that happen. Let's pray that God would do it. Father, we come before you and we are so thankful for your providence. Even before the sermon, we got to hear it from these children in our church reminding us of your sovereign hand and how you're sovereign in salvation. Lord, we bless you for the tapestry of your providence and how you prepare people to hear the message and how you prepare your people to bring a message. I pray that even this week, Lord, you would be pleased to work through the brothers and sisters in this room as we scatter and go into the rest of our week, that you would providentially create opportunities for people to hear. Would you ready people's hearts to hear a message of Jesus Christ and peace through Jesus Christ? And God, would you providentially, and I trust that you have in part from this time, prepare the hearts of your people to speak that message boldly, with compassion, with humility, with love, knowing that they have to help prepare people to meet the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Give them grace to want to promise people what Jesus said they can promise people. Forgiveness of sins for those who believe in his name. Oh Lord, would you grant many, even in peers, repentance and faith that leads to life eternal. God, we want to be a church that actually takes your mission seriously. God, whatever humps we have to get over to be more faithful in sharing the gospel, we pray that just as your spirit worked in Peter to help him get over the hump, would you break down any hesitations in us so that we more and more freely share the gospel. Give us aching hearts for our family members and friends, even some that are very respectable but are unconverted. Lord, have mercy because we can become so lukewarm, so callous, so dull to these things. But Lord, make these things alive in our hearts. And God, we pray that you'd forgive us for any sluggishness. Forgive us for ways we become dull to this message. Forgive us for ways that we fail to see this as a benediction over our lives and something that's meant to be shared and sung over others. And God, renew in us a desire to speak this gospel to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters, to our family members and friends. And Lord, give us a renewed passion to do whatever it takes to help this gospel to get over the hump of reaching some of the hardest to reach places. And I specifically, we pray, Lord, even as we are preparing to send Daniel and Sam out, God, we pray that you would providentially work in these next months to prepare them. And that you would providentially work in this people group that they're going to go to that we don't even know who it is yet. Would you prepare the way for your gospel? And would you prepare our hearts for a long-term partnership with Daniel and Sam to see to it that that gospel goes to another place where a flag for Christ is planted there? 
Lord, for your glory, would you weave together another beautiful story and allow us the privilege of being part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.